we were not fucking clairvoyant. Like, the polls said he was going to win the whole way. Like, people, they just did not want to see what was in front of them. It's not like I had some fucking superpower. It's I read the polls and believed them because I know that I'm out of touch, unlike other reporters who believe that they're in touch with normal people. Welcome to Good Faith. I'm Ben Dreyfus. In 2019, I got a call from a booker of a talk show. They wanted me to come on and make the case for Joe Biden's candidacy. Sure, but why me, I asked. Well, you're the only liberal pundit I know who might support him. They were right. Of course, I wasn't the only actual person who supported Biden's campaign that early. He was leading in the polls at that point. But on Twitter and in liberal media, there was an assumption that those numbers would fade and Bernie or Elizabeth Warren would win. I was right and they were wrong. My argument, which I made on that first show, was that Joe Biden was Facebook. Elizabeth Warren was Twitter. The media and pundit class pays a lot of attention to Twitter, the same way that film critics pay a lot of attention to the Sundance Film Festival. But the Sundance Film Festival is not going to be an accurate predictor of what movies are going to score box office glory. I wasn't the only pundit alive to make this observation. Josh Barrow was also very much on the same wavelength. Now, we're about 18 months into Biden's presidency, and I think it's safe to say that things could be going better. He could be more popular. He could have passed more things. He could have rushed ta and la-di-da-da. So I asked Josh to join me so that we could talk about the state of this presidency. How we got here. What's gone right. What's gone wrong. What we maybe got wrong back in 2019. And whether or not it's time to panic. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Ben? I'm doing all right. Thank you for joining me on the second episode of my podcast. Of course. I remember, I think the last time that I saw you in person, we were together in Neiman Marcus in (laughs) 2019 in a bar. Yes. Talking about how... This is the the short-lived Neiman Marcus at Hudson Yards, uh, (laughs) casualty of the pandemic. The bar in that Neiman Marcus was great because there was never anybody in it, which is why the Neiman Marcus closed, because nobody ever appeared (laughs) to actually shop there. But the bar made a really good Gibson. I remember that when you were like, yeah, come meet me. We're going to meet my favorite bar. It's uh, floor five in Neiman Marcus. And I was like, oh, oh, right. But then it was wonderful and there was no one there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I remember we were sitting there and we were talking about the Democratic primary and how everyone was talking about Elizabeth Warren and, you know, Bernie Sanders. And you and I both agreed and seemed to be the only people who did that Joe Biden was going to win the primary. Right. And then that happened, which was wonderful. It's always nice to be right. And then (laughs) despite the drama of 2020, you know, he somewhat had a very successful general election campaign. And all of the reasons that I feel like you and I both identified in that bar in Neiman Marcus really paved the way that they proved themselves in his successful campaign. Since then, it seems like his presidency has not gone to plan. No, it hasn't. And I'm curious to know from you, do you think that Joe Biden's presidency so far, would you call it a failure? And if so, why? I wouldn't call it a failure. I mean, I think that there are huge problems with inflation, which I'm sure we'll talk about at great length because I think that's the president's number one political problem in in addition to being a really significant substantive problem in the economy. But there's a lot that's gone right in the economy over the last year and a half. We've had rapid recovery of employment and economic output. And so you can imagine a situation in which you have less inflation, but you also have 
significantly fewer people working. The economy has not grown as much to regain what was lost in the pandemic as it did, in fact, in the real world that we lived through. So, you know, Biden was playing a difficult hand in a number of aspects. Similarly, with the the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think that, you know, clearly, tactically, that could have been handled better. And I think that ended up being a really significant political problem for the president. It was the moment when people really started seeing, hey, maybe this administration is not as competent as I thought it was. But that was also a difficult hand to play. I mean, you could have kept that war going indefinitely, as had been the choice the presidents had been making for 20 years. But I think any end to it was likely to be messy, even if it wasn't going to be that messy. So I think, you know, to to some extent, it's a difficult time to be a world leader. We see a lot of leaders around the world in great difficulty in terms of their approval ratings. It's not a good time to be Boris Johnson right now. Justin Trudeau has had his own difficulties in Canada. So I think that the president certainly could have handled a number of things better, and we can talk about the things that he could have done differently that would have produced less inflation. There are things that personally annoy me about his positioning within the Democratic Party, where I think part of the secret to his success in the campaign was that he was very offline, that he basically had a normal person's perspective on politics and the extremely unrepresentative set of people within the Democratic Party who drive the elite discourse, the people on Twitter, they're basically all Elizabeth Warren voters. They have a bunch of very unpopular ideas. They're very annoying. You can't staff up an entire administration without those people because that's the entire staffer class in the Democratic Party. So I think that has caused the president to make some substantive mistakes, particularly on immigration, where I think he did some things without realizing how unpopular that they were going to be. I think it's caused some messaging problems for him and especially for officials under him in the administration. But while those things really greatly annoy me personally, and I do think that they are a problem politically, I really think the number one problem is inflation. And the number two problem way down is the Afghanistan withdrawal in terms of his actual political difficulties. So I I just sort of want to maintain that perspective. There are things that I don't really like about how things have gone, but I think number one, the biggest problem is just, you know, consumer prices up eight and a half percent over a year. Right. I mean, you're breaking the cardinal rule of Twitter punditry, which is you're supposed <laughs> to say that what annoys you is what's destroying his presidency. I mean, to be clear, I don't like inflation. Inflation annoys <laughs> me, but it's not you know, it's not my hobby horse in the way that like, you know, people saying Latinx really bothers me. <laughs> right. Of course. I think that like when you look at his poll numbers, you correctly yeah. identified it. Afghanistan is a turning point. Yeah. His numbers very clearly start to plummet right then with this disastrous sort of withdrawal. And after that, they just never really recovered. And there's been a, a string of different types of issues that have come up. And you correctly talk about how inflation is the biggest one here. But I, I think it's somewhat interesting that if you were to talk today to voters, no one's actually upset about Afghanistan. In the current context, it's not like people are going, oh, I'm so concerned about what's going on in Kabul. Right. Let me pull up the Gallup most important problem polling. This is my favorite poll question is one that Gallup asks every month where they ask people what's the most important problem in the country. And it's an open-ended question. They don't give people a list of things that they're supposed to pick from. And so I think it really gives a good sense of, you know, what issues people actually really care about, what they're focusing on. I mean, one thing you see in there is like environmental issues are always two or three percent and climate change is just one of many environmental issues. So you see all this stuff about like, you know, climate anxiety is destroying this generation of children and, you know, they can't get out of bed in the morning because they're so upset about climate 
climate change. But then you look and you ask them, what's the most important problem right now? Almost nobody says climate change. But you also see in there that you've seen this steady increase in the number of people citing economic problems and particularly problems related to inflation. You see either 17% of people give an answer that Gallup categorizes as high cost of living or inflation. Another 11% say something more general about the economy. 4% specifically name fuel prices or oil prices. So that's, you know, that's about a third of the public there. The first thing that comes to their mind is the most important problem facing the country right now is inflation. That's bigger than any other category. Afghanistan, I believe, is down at zero. Yes, it's zero for March. It was less than 1% in February. So yeah, if you ask people what's top of mind about what's bothering them, they're not very likely to say Afghanistan. I think it flowed through in the way you describe where it was an episode that that looked really incompetent. I mean, especially the, the administration had said things publicly about that they didn't think Kabul was going to fall this fast, and then it did. So clearly whatever happened there wasn't what they were expecting to happen. And then to turn around and argue basically, well, it was inherently messy and it couldn't have been better than that is undermined by the fact that they had been saying in advance that they thought it was going to be better than that. So I think it did make them look incompetent, but I also, I don't want to overemphasize the sort of turning point nature too much because the inflation problems kept getting worse through 2021. So his numbers get worse in the summer. I don't know that that's because people were still fixated on Afghanistan for a long time or because they were going to be getting less happy because of the rising prices or that, you know, what happened with Afghanistan caused some people to reevaluate whether Biden was really a, a steady, incompetent hand. But the number one thing they then ended up focusing on was prices rather than Afghanistan or any other foreign policy aspect. Seems like there was definitely during last year, as inflation slowly became bigger and bigger and bigger, that there was a reluctance on a certain part of the media, but particularly the liberal media, which yeah. is a lot of the media, to acknowledge that and mm-hmm. to really deal with it in sort of a serious way until the shark swims up and bites them on the ass, sort of <laughs> when it becomes sort of unavoidable. Yeah. I think a few things happen there. One, I think, is just sort of a a general reluctance among liberals to admit that something was going wrong when the president was a Democrat. I think that people are very obsessed with, oh, you're building a narrative here. And especially, I mean, you'll see people like Will Stansel saying on Twitter that people are upset about gas prices because the media keeps telling them that gas prices are so high when, you know, in fact... People buy gasoline all the time, except for people who are in the media in New York and D.C. on Twitter all the time who don't have cars. The vast majority of American adults drive cars. The vast majority of those cars are gasoline-powered. People are very well aware of prices for fuel and also for food, and those have been going up faster than general inflation over this period. People are unsurprisingly upset about that. There was also sort of an underlying economic policy fight that I think made people reluctant to say that inflation was getting out of hand because you know, we went through this period of basically 20 years where the Fed was often undershooting its inflation target and unemployment was most of the time over 6%. So you basically had this persistent slack in the labor market that was suppressing wage growth, that was taking power away from employees and giving it to employers. We were basically used to the situation where you had a buyer's market for labor, where it was easier to be an employer than to be an employee. And there had been this successful effort to push the Fed to re- balance the way it thinks about employment and inflation to basically be willing to tolerate somewhat more inflation in pursuit of lower unemployment. And that was actually starting to pay off in the Trump administration. 
where part of why Trump had the political strength that he did through 2018, 2019 was that the economy and the labor market were quite good. We had finally gotten to this point of tightness in that. And there was a real reluctance, and I would include myself and the people who were reluctant about this, to start saying we should worry about inflation because basically we spent all this time convincing people that it was the right for the Fed to turn this stuff on and that you shouldn't listen too much to the inflation hawks. And now it was basically the risk was that was going to get turned off too soon and we wouldn't have the job growth that we needed. We wouldn't have the recovery out of the pandemic that we needed. You can combine that with the fact that it's an extremely bizarre time economically. And it was at least somewhat difficult initially to figure out why the inflation was happening. So broadly, you can get prices that rise because of things that happen on the supply side, like you can have an oil crisis or some other thing that reduces the real supply of something that you need. Maybe like you could have a famine that reduced the supply of wheat, that sort of thing. That can drive up prices from the supply side. And that's basically... What you have to do there is ride that out or fix the problem on the supply side. That's not usually the central bank's responsibility to respond to. You can also have inflation that comes from the demand side, where basically, you know, you send a lot of money out to people, you send stimulus checks, you send unemployment benefits that exceed the wages that people were receiving when they had previously been working, all these things that we actually did during the pandemic period. And that basically makes the economy a wash in money. You get a greater increase in the amount of money that people have than the amount of goods and services that can be available for sale. And that creates a demand side effect that pushes up inflation. And so there was this question of, is the inflation coming from the demand side or is it coming from the supply side? And the answer was there was some of each happening. But I think most people, including me, sort of focused too much on the supply side stories and not enough on the demand side stories. And that basically meant that people, including inside the Federal Reserve, were not focused enough on there is demand-driven inflation and the Fed needs to address that by raising interest rates, by stopping its program of buying bonds to push down interest rates. Basically, the things that the Fed was correctly doing in 2020 to support the economy, it needed to stop earlier. And it didn't because both inside the Fed and outside the Fed, there was this real reluctance to focus on inflation as a burgeoning problem. So I think those two factors combined to cause people to allow themselves to be snuck up on a little bit too much. Now, there were dissenting voices. I mean, you, you have voices on the right who have basically been saying for 40 years that we were going to have runaway inflation. And if you keep making the same prediction over and over again, it will eventually be correct. But you also had economists like Larry Summers and Jason Furman, veterans of Democratic administrations who were warning back in 2021 that when we did this American Rescue Plan that was the, the last round of COVID economic relief, basically the package was too big by several hundred billion dollars, maybe as much as a trillion dollars. And that sort of the way stimulus works is when the economy is actually depressed, the government sends money out and that turns into more spending and more economic activity and you get real growth. When the economy is not depressed, if you try to stimulate the economy that way and you send more money out, you don't get more real growth, you just get more inflation. And so they were basically saying that we'd gone past the point where this package was going to be effective at producing real growth, and we were basically just going to get more inflation on the margin. And that turned out to be true. It actually turned out to be more true than they thought it was going to be. Jason Furman and Larry Summers were not predicting 8.5% inflation, which is what we actually have right now. But there were people who said at the time correctly that Democrats needed to be more careful about how big that package was, partly because it would be inflationary and also partly because it took up all the fiscal space that Democrats wanted to use later for Build Back Better. I mean, you had Joe Manchin driving liberals crazy through the later part of 2021 saying that he's worried about inflation and that he doesn't think that if we do this 
additional spending package, which in theory was supposed to not increase the deficit, but it had all these gimmicks and the spending was front-loaded. Joe Manchin was right that that was going to be more economic stimulus that would have increased inflation that was already going to be a problem. Very few people had that perspective at the time, but it was correct. And if the American Rescue Plan had been about half the size that it was, only about $1 trillion instead of two, then there would have been a better economic argument that we could do something resembling Build Back Better without creating inflation. So I think that a lot of the mistakes go back all the way to the beginning of the administration with American Rescue Plan being badly designed. And the the feeling at the time was basically just put the money in a cannon and shoot it out, that undershooting is a bigger problem than overshooting and just throw everything against the wall. I think that both that created a significant part of the inflation. There's inflation around the world, but we have higher inflation than they have in Europe and other advanced economies. And that's a key part of why. And then it also, it ended up screwing up the rest of the legislative agenda, that because you created the substantive inflation problem, it made it harder to do the other things more permanent things that various interest groups in your coalition wanted. So I think the errors really go back right there to the beginning to ARP, which felt like such a huge political win for the president at the time. He'd taken this very narrow congressional majority and gotten this very aggressive plan through, but it was actually too aggressive for his own interests. Looking ahead to 2024, what do you think the chances are that Biden will be reelected? I think Biden stands a pretty good chance of getting reelected. The economic situation will be significantly different two and a half years from now than it is right now, especially if if inflation has come down significantly. I mean, there's a history of this where you have really nasty first midterm elections in difficult economic circumstances. Ronald Reagan in 1982, Bill Clinton in 1994. 94 was different because it wasn't a recession he was dealing with, but there had been this deficit reduction package that had had certain negative effects and that sort of thing. And then those presidents come back two years later and have quite a strong re-election, in part because there are better circumstances and also in part because once the other party has come into power in Congress, people are sort of reminded of what they didn't like about that party. Or at least that was in 94. In 82, I guess, Democrats had already controlled one chamber. They'd already controlled the House of Representatives starting in 1980. But the median voter likes a certain amount of balance. Uh, I don't know whether this is good judgment on the part of the median voter, but they basically think that, you know, having one party run Congress and the other party run the White House causes them to check each other's instincts and not do anything too crazy. And so I... Right, or do anything at all. They don't, don't really want much to be done. Yeah. So that means, you know, once Republicans have control of one or both houses of Congress, and by the way, I think it's not impossible that Democrats will hold the Senate. The Senate's weird and idiosyncratic and yeah. Republicans have made some specific recruitment mistakes in Senate races. So you could have, you know, the die just lands a weird way and Democrats end up holding on in the Senate. I think it's very likely that they will lose the House. So I think, you know, once you have Republicans in charge and part of Congress, people will be less afraid of Democrats run amok because the Republicans are there to stop various instincts of theirs. And you'll have various Republican behavior that is unattractive, whether that's sort of, you know, crazy looking investigations or if it's Rick Scott, who's really eager to tell anyone who will listen that he wants to raise taxes on tens of millions of Americans. So I think the outlook for 2024 is significantly better than the outlook for 2022. That said, it's entirely possible that Republicans would run the table in 2024. But incumbent presidents usually get reelected. Totally. I think that you mentioned a couple of different things here that make sense when you look at 2024 versus 2022. And Mm -hmm. one of them is, assuming Republicans take the House or in some control of Congress, then voters actually have something to compare them to. It's not just running against an incumbent against inflation. It's not some fantasy. And then also there can be a person on a presidential ticket who might be Donald Trump, which people famously hate him. Right. And you have them actually doing things that are toxic. And it's not just about what the Democrats have done. It's not just hearing sort of the crazy parts of the left. It's crazy parts of the right, too. Yeah. Having said that, that's normally my normal feeling about all this. 
But the Republicans have actually like done in the last few months a pretty good job of actually making news they don't want to make. Which starts with Rick Scott releasing that plan to raise taxes right. on people. Which clearly drove Mitch McConnell insane. And then continues sort of with like them going to war with Disney, the most beloved company in the world. Yeah, I don't entirely know what to make of the Disney stuff. I mean, my guess is that the Disney stuff is mostly just like much less important politically than people make it out to be. I think that people love talking about these sorts of cultural fights because everybody is qualified to have an opinion about them and people get emotional about them. I mean, like people love to talk about random school libraries banning like obscure books or removing them. I mean, the library, you know, a library always has a, a subset of all of the books that exist in the world. With the internet now, it's sort of less important than ever what specific physical books are in what specific libraries. But people love to talk about these things because it's easy and sort of emotionally satisfying to have a view about. So I'd sort of put the Disney thing in that box where I think, you know, the, I mean, there are broader concerns about like use of state power to reward and punish specific companies. You saw, I mean, the Donald Trump trying to block the AT&T Time Warner merger back when he was president because he was mad about CNN. So I think that that's a substantive concern there, but I don't think that's really top of mind for a lot of voters. And I I think this is an issue that, that people really like to talk about on Twitter that probably does not actually have large effects on elections. I do think for 2024, Trump could be the nominee and Trump is a weaker nominee than a lot of other options that Republicans have available to them. I think partly Democrats haven't understood that they've shifted hard to the left on a number of issues over the last six years or so on immigration, on crime, on various, you know, issues about how we should think about race and racism in the United States. And I think that these things have generally been a drag on the party politically. And partly they haven't noticed that because Republicans had their own drag at the top of their ticket. And that was just limiting the amount of damage the Democrats could do to themselves because the other option was so unappealing to so many people, especially college-educated people. And so I think there's a possibility for a bit of a rude awakening there if Republicans nominate a more normal candidate in 2024 who doesn't have those liabilities, especially if that candidate can also continue some of the, the areas where Trump was smarter politically than the average Republican, which is to say Trump did not want to cut your Medicare benefits. People get really mad when you point this out, but Trump had like moved significantly to the left on LGBT rights issues compared to prior Republican presidential candidates, including Mitt Romney. And so there were certain ways that Trump moderated while he became extreme and obnoxious in other ways. So if you had a candidate who figured out how to keep that sort of moderation in those areas where it was politically advantageous while dropping the most unappealing aspects of his personality, I think that could be really politically hazardous for Democrats. They're not really prepared for that. They don't understand how weak their hand is because they don't understand that they've become significantly more extreme. Now, that said, I think it's very likely that if the nominee is not Trump, it'll be Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis has his own mixed bag here. I think when you look at the way he's done actual Florida politics, I mean, first of all, he won by the skin of his teeth a governor's race in that state. So it's not like he was some electoral juggernaut. He, like, beat a candidate from the Democratic side who I think was not an especially good candidate who was, like, who was uh, aligned to the corruption bro- charges and ended up, you know lot of scandals. Are there corruption charges with Andrew Gillum? He had that, he was he was having, he was having sex with a man. Corruption is a mayor, I think. Oh, you're, oh, right. The, uh, or his, his aide, or yeah, there was, yeah, but the, yeah, it wasn't, but he it was wasn't also, out yet, but it was like, there yeah. was, there was rumors about it and stuff like that. Yeah. There was a, some trip somewhere. He was quite a left-wing candidate. I mean, they had Gwen Graham and Philip Levine, who was the mayor of Miami Beach. They had other candidates who I think would have run better statewide, who probably would have beat Ron DeSantis because Andrew Gillum came so close to beating him. But then once he became governor, he has combined this, like, 
tremendous appetite for culture war fighting with some stuff that is pretty broadly appealing, including that the, he's done two teacher pay increases. Now, partly that's because basically every state in the whole country is in budget surplus. So governors of both parties have money to throw around because Democrats gave them too much money in the American Rescue Plan. It's actually one of the things that's driving inflation. So it puts Ron DeSantis in a position where he can sign a law creating a, a bonus payment to teachers to do some sort of civics education. And then he can go give a press conference about how this is a non-CRT civics education. And he's standing up against CRT in Florida's schools. And that's, you know, that's the national message. But what people see in Florida is that he raised teacher pay. So I think to some extent, he's been able to play those issues smartly. Now, in other cases, I think he hasn't done that. I think this war that he's declared on Disney, I think could become a problem for him to the extent that it starts having actual economic effects in Florida. Disney's not going to leave Florida, but in California, when Anaheim didn't play ball with Disney on certain tax provisions like they had been doing for decades and decades, Disney just canceled its hotel expansion plans there. So you could see something similar in Florida where Disney could say, the policy environment here is hostile. We're actually not going to build that new hotel because we are concerned about the business environment in Florida. This effort to abolish the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is the special government that covers Walt Disney World, I think is probably not actually going to come into effect. There are various legal barriers, but if it did, you could end up with a significant property tax increase in Orange and Osceola counties in the Orlando area, which are places where and this Republicans- debt bubble, where they all have right. to like adopt this billions of dollars. Right. And so like that's an area where Republicans have been quite proud of the inroads that they're making with Hispanic voters, a lot of Puerto Rican voters in the Orlando area. And I think Republicans have correctly identified that Democrats have made certain cultural policy mistakes that have undermined their positioning with Hispanic voters, especially working class Hispanic voters. But if you impose a big property tax increase on them, that could be a thing that could drive them back into the Democrats' arms. So I think that DeSantis is often overly aggressive. I think Trump is also correct to say that, like, Trump is fun and DeSantis isn't fun. While Trump has repellent aspects of his personality, he also has certain appealing aspects of his personality, which DeSantis doesn't have. He doesn't seem like he'd be fun at a party. So right. I think that DeSantis is not necessarily a strong candidate for Republicans either in a general election. But I think the big risk for Democrats is if somehow Republicans nominate Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, or someone who is as close as possible to generic Republican, who seems to have been making more of an effort to appeal across party lines. I think that could be really hazardous at re-election. And I th Biden said this aloud the other day that, you know, that he's better off facing Trump again. I'm not sure that it's a great thing for the country to have a third general election featuring Donald Trump, but I think it is true that Democrats are most likely to win the 2024 election if Trump is the nominee. One of the things that you're describing is, frankly, with this DeSantis stuff that he's been doing, and a lot of the stuff where it's questionable about how it would play moderately, mm -hmm. I'm very sympathetic to the idea that a president like Biden, who is generally pretty moderate, I mean, moderate in certain terms. In disposition. Yeah, that he somewhat suffers, and a lot of Democrats do, from a brand toxicity that comes from the left that he might not personally share, but that there is a part of the left that is increasingly loud on social media and on CNN and MSNBC that creates a brand problem for Democrats in lots of parts of the country. And that hurts Biden. It hurts Senate candidates in Montana. But then why when it seems like that's exactly what's going on with DeSantis making LGBT things an issue when they weren't an issue for a few years and going to war with Marvel Mm -hmm. Why that actually like doesn't seem to have the same toxic thing for the Republican brand for Republicans who aren't doing that the same way that I think that it does on the left. 
Well, I'd say a couple of things about that. One is I'd be specific about talking about the brand problem created by the left, because I think this is a very real thing, but I think it applies to certain social issues-focused aspects of the left. If you look at polling on policy proposals from Democrats, like one of the most broadly popular policy proposals they have is to, is to impose price controls on prescription drugs, which is a lefty policy. But that's one, if you go out and talk about that, people will tend to agree with you. Marijuana legalization has become a 70-30 issue. I think it would be great if Democrats talked more about wanting to legalize marijuana. I don't think that's an issue that has historically been associated with moderate Democrats. So I think that there are, if you're trying to do popularism, where basically you want to propose things that, that poll well and talk about about them a lot. And if you have to do something unpopular, try not to draw too much attention to it. There are things that are left-wing that are completely compatible with popularism that Democrats could and should talk about more. Um, this is part of the problem with Kirsten Cinema, where like at least Joe Manchin, as he was driving progressives crazy with his notes on the proposed Build Back Better law, was he was virtually always pushing in a direction that would make the law more popular than it would have been otherwise, whereas Cinema was trying to actually block some of the most popular lefty-coded aspects of Build Back Better, like those prescription drug price controls and certain tax increases on the wealthy. So I think that nobody is more irritated about the left than me, but I think we need to be careful about you know exactly which things we say the left is doing that are causing political problems because not all of them are. Sure. Okay. But when people yeah. talk about the popularism date, they're not talking about those issues. You know, well, I, but I they think should that David be. Shore thinks that like, they should, you know, Biden should come one, out for marijuana legalization. Right. But I mean, that, that's like the number one piece of low hanging fruit that's available to him as a thing to do something that would be popular, that would divide the Republican Party and unite the Democratic Party. Yesterday, he should propose a federal marijuana legalization law. It's also substantively correct on the merits. I find sort of baffling that Biden has not been able to come around on that issue it would solve both a political and, and a substantive problem for him. But I think that, you know, in terms of why that sticks with the left more than it does with the right. I mean, first of all, I think maybe we overestimate the extent to which it sticks to the Democratic Party because, again, I think the number one political problem for Democrats right now is inflation. And if inflation was 2.5%, then we might see that Biden had really high poll numbers and we would be saying, see, I guess nobody gives a shit that there are people on social media saying defund the police uh, and, you know, like, you know, pregnant people and these sorts of things. So I think, first of all, we should be open to the possibility that maybe this isn't as large a political problem as we thought. And then I think on the Republican side, you mentioned, you know, Rick Scott going off message and saying he wants to, you know, sunset every federal law after five years, which would presumably include Medicare and Social Security. But mostly Republicans have had pretty good message discipline. Mitch McConnell has been extremely disciplined about this stuff. And you could see that in his derisive press conference answers about his own colleague, Rick Scott, saying, you know, well, when Republicans have the majority, I can tell you two things that won't be on our agenda. And those are a tax increase on 100 million Americans and sunsetting Social Security and Medicare. And then he goes through the list of issues. It's basically that they, you know, they, they want to talk about crime, defense, inflation, and a couple of other of these core issues where they have a message that's basically just about how like Democrats are mishandling this and we'll stop doing that. Republican messaging often has not been super specific about how they would fight inflation, although they do have some specific things that they say, you know, more oil and gas exploration, and they want different different personnel in the Federal Reserve and various things like that. But I think that in general, I'm not sure that the average voter looks at Republicans and the first thing they think about is the don't say gay law or the parental rights and education law. I don't really like any of the terminology for this thing. It's, it's sort of hard to summarize in a sentence. Again, I think the number one thing people are focused on is inflation. And whatever it is that Republicans are saying about inflation, it's not crazy and extreme and weird. I mean, it seems like you're making a really great sort of defense of the parts of the left that the popularism side of this debate has mm -hmm. focused on a lot, how important a lot of these 
issues that people do like to get very upset about the, um, you know, defund the police and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. That actually, like, maybe they're not the toxic sort of bombs that everyone has been treated by like that. And in reality, it's this very big asteroid that's going on right now, which is <laughs> inflation. Yeah. We had a mayoral primary here in New York City where I live, and there was very little energy for the defend the police candidates. So to be clear, these ideas are not popular. I'm not defending them. And I think especially in local elections, they matter a lot because one of the most important things that local government does is fight crime. I'm just not convinced that that's necessarily a really large driver of federal election outcomes. Totally. I guess like the point I was thinking about was that it's then such a double mistake for the left part of the Democratic Party to not acknowledge and do their best to deal with inflation because it's blowing up in their face in a number of different ways. No part of the Democratic Party is handling that well, except arguably Joe Manchin, who was correct about, you know, that we'd done more than enough already on the fiscal side. But yeah, I mean, this is part of why I've been beating this drum over and over. The president only has so much he can do on inflation, but he has things he can do. He should do a a gas tax holiday, which I realize is gimmicky, but there's a reason that several states are doing them. It's something that he could do that would move the price of gasoline down by probably, the the tax is a bit over 18 cents. It would probably, you know, you'd probably get a, a 13, 14 cent a gallon reduction in gasoline. It's not going to get it all the way back, but that's material. There are tariffs that were imposed in the Trump administration, often for really stupid reasons, not just on China, also on Europe. They've unwound a a little bit of that, but there's a lot more that they could unwind. That could take several tenths of a percentage point off of inflation. On immigration, there's this huge backlog of visas to be issued. Now, partly they would like Congress to authorize more legal immigration, and under the right structures, I would be in favor of that. But there's all these visas that the Biden administration has legal authority to issue that it's not issuing because the consulates and the State Department and USCIS cannot get their act together and there's this immense backlog where like you can't get an interview for your visa for a year or a year and a half or whatever it is. And some of those are non-immigrant visas that are not for work where it's like, you know, I want to come visit my children in the United States. And that's unfortunate and we should fix that too because people who have good personal reasons to come to the United States who are ordinarily, we would ordinarily get a visa to, we should give those people visas. But there are also, there are more jobs that could and should be filled with workers on work visas that would address some of the inflation problem because a lot of the inflation right now is driven by wage inflation. I realize people like seeing wage increases, but the overall effect on the economy has just been to flow through to prices. So there are things that the administration could be doing directly under its own power to get more of those visas issued that would also push down inflation. They haven't acted satisfactorily on any of those things. And so that's what drives me crazy because I think to some extent, a lot of liberals look at this and say, well, yeah, the problem, people aren't, you know, the people aren't mad about XYZ. They're mad about inflation, which we can't do anything about. So why should I do anything about, you know, that my messaging on crime or immigration or anything else is unpopular? And I think they're right to identify inflation as the number one problem, but that means that you have to take whatever tools that are available to you and fight as hard as possible on, on inflation, then also make a big show of showing how hard you're fighting inflation. I mean, some of the stuff to do with fossil fuel leasing, you know, one of the top things Republicans say is, well, to lower gas prices, we need to drill for more oil in the United States. And why isn't the Biden administration issuing more leases for oil and gas exploration on federal lands and that sort of thing? And one of the responses you get from Democrats is basically the lead time on that is really long. You issue a, a lease now and, you know, we're not going to be getting the oil out of the ground for a couple of years anyway, so it doesn't matter. Well, so A, like, 
we still may well want that oil in two years. So why not get cracking on issuing the lease now? And B, if you issue the leases, you can talk about how you're issuing all the leases. Maybe you can even talk about how you stood up to these maniac activists in the party who are trying to stop you from doing this, the activists who like it when gas prices go up. And you can say, well, I don't agree with that. I want lower gas prices. I want more oil drilling here. I mean, part of what solidified Barack Obama's economic positioning around the middle of his term was the moderation in gas prices that came from the huge increase in U.S. oil production from fracking. We doubled the amount of oil that the U.S. was producing under Barack Obama. Nobody really likes to talk about that because it doesn't serve anybody's political narrative. But so I think, you know, it would behoove Biden to make a show that he is not standing in the way of U.S. fossil fuel production, that he is in fact encouraging it, even if mostly the benefits will not arrive fast enough to help Democrats for the midterms. Because, hey, you know, he's going to be standing for re-election himself in two and a half years. That is enough lead time for some of these things to matter. And so we really ought to get on that now. And I'm really kind of baffled by the lack of urgency on the administration's part about this, because this is their number one political problem. And they, you know, they they have some ability to affect it and they don't really seem to be trying very hard. Yeah, it seems that one of the things that has Biden as president versus Biden as candidate for president hasn't done as well is sort of recognize the opportunities to separate himself from parts of the party that are less popular. And it's been baffling to me to see that happen. And I don't know exactly why it is, but he has been more reluctant, it seems like, to actually stand up and see these as opportunities, sort of to distinguish himself as more of an independent type of mansion-esque character. There's so much behavior by Democrats in Washington that can only really be understood by assuming that what they're focused on is not so much winning elections or enacting policy, but not getting yelled at on Twitter or not getting crap from their friends at some party or at brunch in this universe of entirely Elizabeth Warren supporting political staffers that make up the corpus of the Democratic Party machine. Because it is otherwise completely baffling. I mean, you see this on Title 42 for immigration. People show up at the southern border They've come from from Central America. They're seeking asylum in the U.S., but very often, really, the reason they're coming here is primarily a desire for economic migration, which is a perfectly valid human desire, but that doesn't mean they're entitled to enter the United States. And it's become an unmanageable flow at various times over the last few years. And so when the pandemic came in, you have this order that comes down from the CDC that says for public health reasons because of COVID, we're just going to turn people around when they show up at the border, which is sort of pretextual. That was a valid reason in April 2020. But now it's basically, it's not about COVID. It's about uh, otherwise too many people will show up at the border. And so the administration has decided that they need to lift this order. They haven't had a court tell them they have to lift the order. In fact, a court may prevent them from lifting the order because of certain Byzantine reasons to do with the Administrative Procedure Act. But they've like decided, well, sooner or later we have to lift this. So we're going to do it now a few months before the midterms. And, you know, we think things will be fine down there. And You have all of these vulnerable Democrats in the Senate saying, like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you trying to create another border crisis right before we stand for re-election? And it makes no sense on any political terms. But you always see this news coverage about it. It's like, oh, well, this is an issue that divides the Democratic Party and that, you know, Democrats are going to, you know, they're caught between these two interests. These news stories, they always quote this guy named Frank Sherry who runs a pro-immigration pressure group. And it's always some quote from Frank Sherry about how bad it is that we have Title 42 in place and how Biden needs to lift it. And like, what voters does Frank Sherry speak for? This is a policy that is primarily of interest to people who are citizens of Guatemala and other countries in Central America who, let's be completely frank here, do not vote. If the key constituency for a policy is non-U.S. citizens, 
you can pretty freely say, you know, I'm not going to face a ton of political penalty for not weighting the concerns of that constituency at the top. And that's, I think, why you see it's it's basically it's it's one example of this basically fake groups apparatus that you have in the Democratic Party, where you have these organizations that are staffed by you know professional lefty political operatives that are funded very often by high net worth left wing individuals and foundations, and they create this Potemkin sense that there is some grassroots demand for various unpopular policies. You see this especially on climate, Sunrise Movement, and that sort of thing, where you had Sunrise Movement giving Joe Biden an F minus. Right. Uh, for his climate plan, even though his, you know, he's had this these actually substantively very ambitious policies, lots of money being spent for climate in the infrastructure bill, and yet progressives were mad about it because it didn't contain everything that they wanted. So you have these places where Democrats are caught between real voters who will be really bothered if you foment another surge of migrants at the border, um, and you know causes real problems in Senate races and in places like Arizona. And on the other side, you have the groups who don't speak for anybody. And so either they've been fooled and they don't understand that, or it's, you know, the groups, they, they do consist of people that they actually physically see in Washington, D.C. And the groups have, you know, social media apparatus and they will yell at you and they'll call you names and say that, you know, that you get an F minus on climate if you don't do what they want. And that seems to have actually been quite convincing to a lot of these Democratic officials in a, in a way that I just find completely baffling. And so it only makes sense if their primary goal is not to get yelled at. And people don't like getting yelled at. I mean, you can look at the way Chuck Schumer dealt with Build Back Better, where you were never going to have a $3.5 trillion package. Joe Manchin had made clear that the package was going to have to be about only $1.5 trillion, and it had to be really $1.5 trillion over a decade. He didn't want these gimmicks where it's like you have 10 years of taxes but only four years of spending because you plan to go back and authorize more spending later. And so instead of doing that and coming up with a package that could get his vote and therefore pass the Senate, Chuck Schumer didn't want to have to go and tell some of the groups that their thing was not going to be in the package. And whether that's like the half-baked childcare subsidy plan that was only going to run for a few years and was going to cause all sorts of disruptions in the childcare market where you'd get shortages and people wouldn't be able to find a daycare center at any price kind of thing. It's a huge mess. Chuck Schumer would have had to go tell them, no, sorry, there's no room in the package for your thing. And then various groups would have been mad at Chuck Schumer. He would have been yelled at by the groups. And I guess Chuck Schumer, on some level, is afraid of a primary challenge from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, although I don't think he should be. Ch Schumer's quite good at being a New York retail politician. He even claims that he's a Buffalo Bills fan, which, like, nobody from Brooklyn <laughs> is a Buffalo Bills fan. So in order to avoid that progressive primary challenge, in order to avoid getting yelled at by the groups, Chuck Schumer manufactured this situation where he was able to say yes to everyone and Joe Manchin had to be the guy who said no. And so instead of some people being mad at Chuck, everyone was mad at Joe Manchin. And that worked for Schumer, except that you didn't get any legislation because you never wrote a piece of, le you, you wrote a piece of legislation that made everybody happy because they had their little piece of it, except for the fact that it's not law. And so it's baffling behavior that only makes sense as Chuck Schumer trying to get young left-wing people to like him, mostly for recreational reasons, because he didn't actually need that to win re-election. So if I were a Democratic senator, I would be fucking furious at him. He has been a really bad majority leader, putting his own interests ahead of the interests of the party. It actually makes me pretty angry. But it's also, it's demented behavior. It only makes sense if these people are like themselves basically online brain poisoned and they are too focused on that, you know, some 23-year-old with a rose in their Twitter display name is going to be mad at them because they didn't give them everything that they were asking for. I mean, you also have Chuck Schumer going around like 
tweeting about like demanding cancel student debt like he's some DSA activist. It's completely unconvincing. This is not who right, Chuck I mean, Schumer is. The student is. debt thing that he's been pushing now also seems to, to would just make inflation even worse. Right. Well, and the other thing is, you know, what Chuck Schumer keeps demanding is that the Biden administration unilaterally cancel student debt through administrative action. And there is legal dispute about whether that would stand up in court. And what the Biden administration says is, we don't have the legal authority to do that. Send us legislation that cancels $10,000 of student debt per person, and I will sign it. And so because Chuck Schumer is the majority leader in the United States Senate, he could focus on trying to legislate that as part of one of these packages. But instead, he impotently calls for Biden to do this thing that Biden has said that he isn't going to do and cannot do for clout on the internet because it makes him, it allows him to perform progressivism without actually delivering anything for anyone. In this case, he's letting down the lefty side of the party. But the whole thing is just fake and only makes sense as all an effort by Chuck Schumer to say, you know, whatever happened that progressives didn't like, it wasn't my fault. Right, but I think that like what you're describing, this fear of getting dragged on Twitter, which right. is insane as someone who gets dragged on Twitter constantly, you know, you <laughs> learn to deal with it. Like, yeah. is, it goes, to bring back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this and what we were talking about in Neiman Marcus, was mm -hmm. like Biden's original thing was that he didn't know if he was, what was going on on Twitter. He was the most yeah. offline person that you could have. And yeah. it still, it felt like a superpower then. And, and so one of the things that's just felt more disappointing for his presidency for me is that that has somehow, he's allowed these people who are very online and are terrified of getting dragged to somehow take that power away from him and change the sort of dynamic here. Yeah, well, I mean, this started during the campaign when he endorsed repealing the Hyde Amendment, the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal spending on abortion. And the Hyde Amendment is broadly popular. I mean, public opinion on abortion is a little bit difficult to parse because people have incoherent and internally inconsistent views about it that seem to amount to like, it should be legal, but I don't like it. Or, I mean, so, some of the polling sort of suggests that people's preferred policy is abortion, but only for a good reason. No, obviously you can't write a law that says only for a good reason, but that's basically the, the instinct of where voters are, that they, you know, most people want abortion to be legal, but people are disapproving of it in one way or another, and that's why they favor various restrictions, and that's why they don't want the government paying for it. But there's this activist desire. I mean, they would ultimately like a policy where abortion was treated like any other healthcare procedure, including, you know, if you're on Medicaid, then that's what pays for the abortion, that sort of thing. But there's no constituency for that. So when Biden got talked into by staff, and there's been news reporting about like specific staff basically talking with him about how this is, you know, as important as a women's rights issue and you have to come out and endorse repeal of the Hyde Amendment. So it, they got him to take an unpopular position to no end. You're not going to get a law that repeals the Hyde Amendment. Joe Manchin's not going to agree to repeal the Hyde Amendment. But basically for these extremely online reasons, Joe Biden got talked into taking on, the, it's, it's anti-popularism. He took on this somewhat salient, unpopular position and for no real gain. Like if, you know, sometimes you need to talk about unpopular things so that you can do unpopular things because those unpopular things are important, but they were not going to do Hyde Amendment repeal. There is no deliverable here. It's just political pain. So you already saw a preview of that. Arguably, one of Biden's advantages in the primary was that because he was uncool and because people disregarded all of the polling that had him ahead the entire way through, we were not fucking clairvoyant. Like, the polls right. said he was going to win the whole way. Like, people, they just did not want to see what was in front of them. It's not like I had some fucking superpower. It's I read the polls and believed them because I know that I'm out of touch. Unlike other reporters who believe that they're in touch with normal people, I, right. I, no I don't, two more I don't fucking talk to normal sitting people. Sitting in a bar in Neiman Marcus in New right. York. 
Like, (laughs) so if I need to know about what normal people think, I will look at a poll because they talk to the normal people for me because I don't do that. But you had staffers who were among the class of people who thought that, you know, Biden's old news and his campaign, it's all name recognition. The campaign's going to collapse, blah, blah, blah. So he wasn't attracting so-called top-tier staff, which caused him to rely more on his own instincts and Mm. a cadre of sort of like older seasoned veterans who just weren't going in for a bunch of the dumb fashions. And I think that that helped them out in the campaign. You can't scale that. I mean, in order to staff up the executive office, the president, and top positions in cabinet departments, you have to dig into that like Warren voting class of the Democratic professional staffers who just have bad instincts on a lot of these things. And you saw it especially with the rush to relax various immigration rules that the Trump administration had imposed related to the southern border right at the beginning of the, of the administration. And I understand this had been a strong point of objection for Democrats to the Trump administration. I understand why they wanted to do something different. But the problem was that in the rush to just lift various rules – it created this message that now was the time to come to the U.S. It created the enhanced migrant surge. And so it was a political mistake that he seems to have gotten walked into at the staff level. And they seem to be about to repeat that with Title 42, although maybe not. They now have started saying maybe they'll be able to push back the lifting of the Title 42 order. But that's just inexplicable, I think, other than by staffer capture, because it is it was just substantively such a politically crazy thing to do and they did it anyway. And then similarly with the nonsense over the voting rights laws, which, I mean, was it was two levels of nonsense. One was these bills, they, they never had the votes to pass. They didn't address the most actually important concerns about administering elections in the United States in 2022 and 2024. They don't deal with, you know, what happens if someone tries to replace the electoral votes with different electoral votes. Right. It was basically the laundry list that the groups had drawn up over 10 or 15 years, including campaign finance provisions that were back from when Republicans raised more money than Democrats. The whole incentives around that have switched, and yet they still were trying to do this campaign finance stuff that was constitutionally dubious, strongly ideologically opposed by Mitch McConnell in a way that was going to cause particular problems for passing it, and of no actual practical import for Democrats anymore because they are fucking awash in all this money. So the thing made no sense substantively, and they didn't have the votes to pass it, and they knew they didn't have the votes to pass it. And so... As they're trying to get Joe Manchin to provide votes for some sort of additional fiscal bill, they decide to create two news cycles just about what an asshole Joe Manchin is for blocking this piece of legislation they all knew that he was going to block that wasn't even going to serve important goals for Democrats anyway, and that just makes Joe Manchin more irritated uh, toward Democrats and the Biden administration. And again, it only makes sense as something to do because the groups really wanted it. There's also this reporting about how like the Brennan Center, which had produced this report claiming that Democrats were going to need an 11-point popular vote margin to win back the House in 2018 as part of their general campaign about how terrible gerrymandering is. And, and gerrymandering does disadvantage Democrats on net, but Democrats probably could have retaken the House with a four-point margin in that election. It was like they, they got nine, which got them 17 more seats than they needed. And so you could have shaved several points off that margin. They still would have taken a majority. Brennan Center said it was basically saying that it was hopeless to win the election because you need an 11-point margin, which nobody ever gets. So anyway, these are the luminaries that are driving the way Democrats think about election administration. And meanwhile, they then didn't appropriate enough money for the actually expensive things that election administrators have to do in states to run elections that are more complex if you have more people voting by mail and that sort of thing. So the whole thing, it just made no sense on any substantive grounds and on any grounds where you're trying to serve either a political goal 
or a substantive goal for the administration, but it does serve the end of doing what the people at these professional pressure organizations are saying that they want you to do. It's like it got energy of its own. These people had spent so many years arguing for this package of laws and now they had control. And so now this is what we do without stopping to think about, can we get it done? Is this actually a top political priority? And does this even make sense substantively as policy, given all the things that have changed over that period that we were fighting for it? They didn't do any of that. It was just bonkers. Yeah, I mean, you just listed a bunch of things that were clearly never going to pass and wasn't necessarily clear they should pass. They were unpopular for various reasons. And it was just the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. And it was never going to work. I often like wonder what a number of backbench conservatives or backbench Congress people do all day, you know, like when they're not really, they're just like some loser in the back of the house. You're, what are you really <laughs> doing other than setting up tours? But like, what are the people working on these doing like like they must know in the back of their minds that they're spending all this time on stuff that is clearly not going to pass well so i'd say two things one is again i think this was part of chuck schumer's campaign to show that whatever was happening was not his fault because schumer scheduled these votes and made a big show that he was going to force the senate to vote on this that whoever the progressive groups were mad at for the fact that they didn't change the filibuster rules it was definitely not going to be chuck because chuck made a point of throwing joe manchin under the bus who they were going to need for other things like, you can be mad at Joe Manchin all you want, but Joe Manchin is why you have a majority, and he represents a state that Donald Trump won by almost 40 points. And so what he wants, he gets. And you might not want to, like, call him a racist and an asshole because that just makes it less likely that you're going to get what you want out of him. And by the way, Joe Manchin's poll numbers have gone up substantially in West Virginia over the last few months because when progressives attack Joe Manchin for not being left-wing enough, that makes him look better to West Virginia voters. So in a way, maybe that's actually serving an electoral purpose, like this fighting between Manchin and progressives might actually help Manchin hold the seat. But I don't think that's what the progressives think they're doing. I think the progressives think that they're actually shaming him or putting pressure on him, which which they are not doing. But again, it makes no sense as a way to get policy made, but as a way to make yourself feel good about how ideologically pure you are and to express how good you feel about the good guys in Congress and how bad you feel about the bad guys like Joe Manchin. It definitely works on its own terms. The problem with that is that you don't need to win elections to achieve any of that. You saw a lot of liberals, I think, got a lot of emotional satisfaction out of the Trump years. Now, they would not tell you that. They would tell you that the Trump years were miserable. But I think for a lot of people, it was like a morality play where they were the good guys standing up to the bad guys. And it was just every day a reminder of how morally good they were and how morally bad the other people were. And I think a lot of people basically got addicted to that. And the problem is you can have that again Democrats can lose power. You could do it with Trump. You could do it with Ron DeSantis. And you'd have the same sort of emotional satisfaction. But it doesn't actually cause the government to do the things you want it to do, which I think is supposed to be the core purpose of politics. Yeah. All right. So I have had you here for an hour. I'm going to ask you this (laughs) final question, which is unrelated to basically everything we've talked about. You, I think, have a wonderful brand that I almost stole as the title of this podcast, which is Calm Down. (laughs) Okay. Which is that people often freak out about stuff. And I just love that you're constantly able to tell people to calm down. And Mm -hmm. I, having, you know, stolen 18 million of your opinions over my life, often find myself (laughs) telling people to calm down. And so one thing that I've been asking all the guests on this show at the end is everyone actually has something that they're totally freaked out about. And I want to know what you're actually freaked out about and think I shouldn't be calm about. And because we've already talked a bit about certain things, you cannot mention inflation. (laughs) Hmm. But I'm curious what issue you think I actually should be more concerned with than I am. I mean, I think there are certain kinds of tail risks that we don't worry enough about. And we saw that with the pandemic. I think we are not prepared enough for the next pandemic 
I think that some of the politics that have happened over the last two years and the way that the CDC and public health authorities have very often by their own actions diminished their credibility will limit their range to operate in the next pandemic. And I think part of the upshot of that is that we need to work harder to prevent pandemics from going global in the first place. I just don't think that's been a real focus of government policy to the extent that it should be. It hasn't gotten the large budget allocations in the overall COVID response packages that we've seen. I mean, I think... It sort of doesn't matter whether COVID leaked out of the lab in Wuhan. What matters is what is the level of risk that there will be future leaks from that lab or other labs of of other viruses, which is a risk even if that didn't happen. And so I think, you know, things of that nature, I think people don't worry about enough. I mean, to steal another line from, from Iglesias, like when don't look up, came out. And like, don't look up is, is not actually a good metaphor for climate change, because climate change is not a sudden cataclysmic event. It is a problem that will cause various damage and costs and losses and deaths in the world, but it's not going to wipe out humanity. In fact, the human condition will continue to improve over time, even as the climate changes it just won't improve as much as it would if the climate was not changing. So it's a bad metaphor for that, but like, it's a pretty good metaphor for an asteroid hitting the earth. Like there are, you know, I, one, actually one very specific thing that I, that I worry about that almost nobody worries about is the Yellowstone supervolcano, which erupts every, you know, few hundred thousand or million years. It's like the the Yellowstone, the, the enormous caldera that is the center of, have you been to Yellowstone? Yeah. So it's basically a giant volcano that you're standing on top of and it erupts every few hundred thousand years and sort of almost do. And if it does that, then like we might all die. And there's some talk about, you know, well, there are things we could do to drill various holes into the hot spot under Yellowstone to relieve pressure that would then prevent the thing from ever erupting. But then, I don't know, I'm, I'm also concerned about if you drill into a supervolcano, whether you could, like, set it off or something. Right. That seems like such the first act of a disaster movie, where they're like, right. let's just drill near it. But there are a number of, like, extremely tail-end risks like this that we basically don't worry about at all, or we don't worry about nearly enough. And we saw how we got punched in the face with that, with the COVID pandemic. And so those are the sorts of things that I worry about, that some unexpected thing will happen that will kill all of us, that we did not spend enough time and money trying to prevent, such as an eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano. If the Yellowstone supervolcano went off today, you're sitting where you are in New York, what would you do immediately? So it can't go off in a day, is my under- it's a It's a relatively long you, process. So, I have bad news for you. CNN well, if it goes off, news. If it goes off today, then I, then I, I guess I'm dead in a few weeks or months. I mean, I don't, the, basically you get... What are you going to do? Are you going to go grab Zach? You guys are, are you going to drive to the sea and, 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 and hold each other's... <laughs> like, what do you... What, 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 I'm, I, 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 you're not going to stop it. It's coming, friend. I, I have not made a plan for this. I don't, um, I guess, I guess maybe that's my, what should be my personal preparation for cataclysm is I should figure out <laughs> what I will do in the last moments when I realize we're all going to die. But, uh, so, so thank you for, for pointing out that I'm personally unprepared. <laughs> I mean, I would be trying to use, I would be calling people in the government and be trying to get into some sort of bunker somewhere. I would be asking them if they were Jaws fans and shit. I would be pulling every fucking car I could. But like the super volcano would like kill a bunch of people directly, but mainly what it does is it puts a bunch of ash into the atmosphere and blocks out the sun. And so you would right, get so famine and, have to and in, death in for that, that reason. In that, in that mountain so complex in West Virginia. Right, but what are you going to, what are you going to do in the bunker? You're just like, well, you're going to stay in there. I'm until sure there's, there's, there's fucking food there for a few years. I don't know. How long is the ash in the air? Uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I should, I should look into that. Obviously the government is not going to let someone's live in. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't 
I don't know. I mean, but then like you have your store of food, then you need to like defend it against marauders who will be. Well, that's. True. I don't know. That's. that's true. I mean, the, the, so, so do these like cataclysmic situations? I'm not sure how attractive it is to survive. Right. Right. Like. So you can stay in that bunker forever with your canned food and you have your AK-47 to ensure that nobody comes and steals it from you and you do that until you die of natural causes. Maybe that's better than dying in the, in the catastrophe, but it's not that much better. I mean, it depends on who's in that bunker with you. <laughs> you can find ways of... But you don't have a bunker. You are unprepared for this. In there and you can oh, just God. have everybody having a great day. Oh, God. <laughs> But Ugh. I do think actually, I mean, to your exact point just now, that the fact that neither of us know what we would do if the super volcano went off is a great example right. of like, well, maybe we should have the government think about tail risks. Yes, yes, yeah. So that's 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 what that's what I worry about. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on this show. Of course. Thank you, Ben. This is great. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Josh, you are the editor of Very Serious Substack I'm the author at joshbear.com. And what? I'm the author of, of Very Serious. No, you're not. You're the owner Sarah's the editor. editor. I'm not the editor. I'm not the what? editor. You're the Sarah editor Faye in chief. It. Yeah, but you're I'm, the editor in chief. Well, that's not. I mean, you can call me whatever you like, but I'm, right. I'm Josh, the author of Very Serious. Josh, contributor to Very Serious. A contributor. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the host of a very serious podcast. Yes. Yes, you can find the Very Serious Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can find the Very Serious Newsletter at joshbarrow.com. That's B A R R O. Or just Google it. Or Google it, yeah. All right, thank you so much for being on, Josh. Thank you, Ben. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Faith. I'm Ben Dreyfus, and this episode was produced by Tommy Heron. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to my Substack at bendreyfus.substack.com. And if you didn't enjoy it, well, maybe you're the problem. <laughs>